This episode is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The David Packman Show, The Young Turks, The BBC, The Tom Hartman Program, On the Media, Activism from Best of the Left, Counterspin, and The Ralph Nader Radio Hour. And if I am doing my job well, I expect you will come out of this one with decidedly mixed feelings. The Republican governor of Arizona, Jan Brewer, has done a lot of really bad things as governor. One of the few good things that she has done that we can point to has been not to fall to right-wing pressure to uh, resist the Medicaid expansion as part of the Affordable Care Act in her state, but to actually participate in the Medicaid expansion. And we now are starting to get data about the results of that expansion, and the data predictably show that hospitals have started to save money as a result of this Medicaid expansion that took place. Uh, The uncompensated care at hospitals has decreased, and this has been driven by low-income and uninsured people who can't pay for their hospital bills now being covered by Medicaid. After Arizona, back in 2011, removed childless adults from the Medicaid program, the amount of uncompensated care absolutely skyrocketed. And if you know anything about basic logic and reason, just because a hospital bills someone for care, if they are uninsured, the odds that you will ever collect for having provided that care are obviously lower than for someone who has insurance. And after expanding Medicaid as part of the Affordable Care Act, in the first four months of 2014, according to a new report that we have, The uncompensated care at Arizona hospitals dropped by 31% compared to the same period in 2013. This helped the average operating margin of Arizona hospitals increase from 4% to 5.2% over the last year. That's more than a 25% increase in the operating margin. This is just obvious. I mean, I, I know that there are still people who don't understand the logic and the math behind this and the rationale. But of course, if you bill people who have no insurance, your actual collections will be lower than if you have the Medicaid expansion. And of course, if you have to then pass along to collection agencies, if uh, we, we know how the entire medical billing bureaucracy decreases profits, this is a no-brainer, Lewis, and we still have many states that are refusing to expand Medicaid. Right, and part of it is just in opposition to the current administration. Right. And uh, I'm sure Brewer probably did not want to do this, but of course realized that it was the smart thing to do, it would be good for her state, and she probably had some pressure from... um you know, medical professionals and organizations in her state. Well, the medical professionals and people thinking clearly in Tennessee, Georgia, Virginia, North Carolina, they have not been successful, and many hospitals have actually been forced to close there. It amazes me that there are people in these red states who think the reason they can't get care is because of something President Obama did, as opposed to because their Republican governor is just not participating in the Obamacare programs. Right. It's, uh, you know, I guess you could say the same thing about voting for these people in the first place. It's just uneducated citizens. Well, that, that, that's exactly my question. How can you get people to vote for their own best interests when they don't even know who is responsible for what they're complaining about in their own states? It's very tough to convince someone to vote out their Republican governor when they don't realize their Republican governor is the cause of the problem. You know, so- 
message, but I don't understand. No, I just won't understand. He said. In this sacred land, it has seen many hands. It has wealth and gold, yet it is fragile and old. having troubles in Mississippi with uh, insurance, right? A lot of people are uninsured. And, um, well, luckily there was Obamacare, so that expanded Medicaid. That really worked throughout the country in bringing down the uninsured rates, but not in Mississippi. Well, of course, part of the reason for that is Mississippi Governor Phil Bryant refused to expand Medicaid. So you can't give more people insurance if you didn't expand Medicaid under Obamacare. In fact, uh, the numbers bear that out. As you see here, unfortunately, the uninsured rate in Mississippi has not gone down. It's done the opposite. It's actually gone up by 3.34 percentage points, all the way up to 21.46%. Now, uh, as Talking Points Memo explains, an estimated 137,800 people in Mississippi were left uncovered by health insurance because the state did not expand Medicaid. Okay, so... How is the governor going to explain this? Well, he has a handy-dandy explanation. He says, quote, If statistics show that the ill-conceived and so-called Affordable Care Act is resulting in higher rates of uninsured people in Mississippi, I'd say that's yet another example of a broken promise from Barack Obama. Oh, that's brilliant. You get that? Goddamn Obamacare. It, it starts, and all of a sudden we have more uninsured in Mississippi. But you didn't apply it. You didn't use it in Mississippi. That's why your uninsured went up. Which I don't know what you're talking about. Goddamn Obamacare. <sighs> Man, he says it without blinking. With no conscience whatsoever. Yeah, <laughs> I didn't use Obamacare. Goddamn Obamacare. You see my point? Unreal. Okay. Now, uh, Mississippi has the distinction of being... Uh, the second worst state when it comes to uninsured. I'm sure that if some lib state like Massachusetts has had uh, the equivalent of Obamacare for a long time, which, by the way, is, of course, Romney Care, um, uh, they, they've, they've got to be the worst in the uninsured rate, right? Of course not. Uh, number one in uninsured, Texas, 24.81%. Hmm. Uh, funny. And then here's the uh, most important stat there at the bottom. Nationally, the rate of uninsured has dropped... 3.66 points, all the way down to 14.22%. So the national average is going down. We're ha we have less uninsured because Obamacare has been applied in some of the states. In the states that where it has not been applied, like Mississippi, the exact opposite has happened. There are more uninsured. So if it was Obamacare's fault overall, and it was applied across the country, then wouldn't there be more uninsured all across the country? Well, of course there would be, but there aren't. Actually, there's more people who are insured, and that's because some states actually applied Obamacare. Okay. And um, to give you a sense of some southern states, if you want to compare, that actually did expand Medicaid, there was three of them. Let's talk about that example. This comes from Northeast Mississippi Daily Journal. Only three southern states participated in Medicaid expansion, Arkansas, Kentucky, and West Virginia. All three experienced some of the biggest drops in the percentage of uninsured residents. 10.74% in West Virginia, 8.35% in Kentucky, and 7.1% in Arkansas. So, shocking. It turns out that if you expanded Medicaid and had actually done Obamacare, even in neighboring southern states, 
where you had huge drops in, in the uninsured rate. In Mississippi, instead, it continues to get worse. In fact, it is estimated that if Medicaid was expanded, as many as 300,000 Mississippians could gain health care coverage. But thanks to their Republican governor, those 300,000 people will not have health insurance coverage. So that's not an and if or a maybe, it is unquestionably because of the decision of your governor that you do not have insurance if you're in that bracket. And it's also unquestionably because of your governor that your uninsured rate has gone up, unlike the rest of the country, because you've chosen to go backwards instead of forward. Now, when they asked Phil Bryant, wait a minute, okay, you rejected Obamacare, but what are you doing to get your insurance rate lower? Because obviously that isn't working either, right? Nothing you're doing is working. But you tell me, what's your genius idea to get more people insured in the state of Mississippi? He says, well, we continue to strengthen our overall business climate and attract more job opportunities for Mississippians and their families. In other words, corporate tax cuts. Good folks in Mississippi, if you want insurance, don't reelect Republicans. I'm not high on Democrats, but they're not this, right? Now, on the other hand, if you want more advantages for big corporations, well, the Republicans are your guys. <laughs> is that a hard choice? I guess it is, because they keep reelecting Republicans. So, well, you're going to keep having the worst results in the country as Mississippi does over and over again. Near the bottom, in almost every major category, poverty, lack of education, lack of insurance, and the list goes on and on. But the Republican governors, they have a plan, more breaks for corporations. How's that working out for you, Mississippi? Claire Balderson, and in this week's assignment here on the BBC, I'm in Kentucky to find out about something else this state's become well known for, health care reform. It's the only one in the southern United States to have implemented President Obama's health care laws in full. That makes Kentucky a perfect place to gauge opinion on Obamacare as it's known. In this program, I'll be looking at how the biggest reform in healthcare in 50 years is working out and why it's still so controversial. You're not a great fan of the president, are you? Oh, no. But you don't think Obamacare's a good thing in that it's brought healthcare to a lot of people? Somebody's going to have to pay for it. Now, the government doesn't make any money, okay? They just take money. I think there's a better way. Well, here's a lovely brown horse with a long mane and very long tail, which is having a fan blown at it to cool it down, having been shown. Hi. Hi, we're from the BBC in London. We're actually making a program about healthcare reform, Obamacare. Well, personally, I'm very upset because I already had an existing health coverage plan, uh, but that plan did not meet the criteria 
under the Obamacare. So I'll be forced to take something else which will increase my premiums. Three and four hundred dollars more than what I'm paying now. I can't afford that. So you're not very happy with I'm the president? I'm not happy. I never was happy with him. I don't want to live off the government, but that's me. Not everybody's that way. Would you so. have rather it had just been left exactly as it was? I sure would. Obamacare, or the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act, to give it its proper name, is President Obama's flagship piece of domestic legislation. In the U.S., health insurance is linked to employment. So if your employer doesn't buy into an insurance scheme or you're part-time or unemployed, you're likely to pay for health care out of your own pocket. The costs can be astronomical, so millions get into debt or simply go without. That's what Obamacare is supposed to address. It requires everyone to get insured or risk paying a fine. To help them, there are new online insurance exchanges and government subsidies for those on low incomes. And yet, even some who might benefit most still aren't convinced by Obamacare. I just don't pay the fine. You'll pay the fine? I'll pay the fine. Really? Yeah. What happens if you get sick? Well, I'm trying not to get sick. What happens if you fall off your horse? I don't fall off. <laughs> what I need from you is your address and phone number. Yeah. So they could the Grace Community Health Center in Manchester, Kentucky, treats mostly low-income patients from surrounding Clay County, one of the poorest counties in the U.S. It's also one of the most unhealthy. In a small office tucked away at the back of the clinic, 26-year-old Liberty Sizemore, seriously overweight and worried she might be diabetic, is finalizing her enrollment in Obamacare. Because you weren't able to go to the doctor up until up last week. Last week, yeah. Okay. Like many patients who come here, Liberty now qualifies for Medicaid. That's the government program that pays for health care for the poorest Americans. Under Obamacare, states can get federal funds to expand their Medicaid programs, so many more of the low wage, like Liberty, who's a gas station cashier, are also covered. I've not had insurance since I was 19 years old. So what do you been doing all this time? Emergency only will I go to the hospital. Like the last time I was at the hospital was like two years ago and I had to have my appendix removed. And then you had to pay for it? I'm paying on it. I haven't paid for it, it completely. As well as being one of the poorest, Clay's also one of the most Republican counties in the U.S. At the last election, only 15% of voters here supported President Obama. But distaste for the president hasn't stopped locals signing up for his health reforms. Since enrollment opened last October, the numbers of uninsured in Clay have been cut by well over half. Hundreds of them have been registered by the person who's helping Liberty with her application, outreach worker Jennifer Gates. It is working. It is working for those that reach out for it, that needed medication, that couldn't afford to go to the doctor, and now they're able to do that. What kind of overall impact do you think this is going to have on the health of a community like this in Clay County? I think those needs will be met now. Those people that are walking the streets sick can now have hope and coverage that they don't have to stand and hide their illness or figure out how they're going to pay for their medication or how they're going to pay for a doctor bill. Now they can come in. Do you think you've saved people's lives by what you do here? I think I have. 
And hopefully today you will hear some success stories from those lives that I've touched. What are you guys eating? What are you eating, Paisley? What's your favorite oh, thing? No, I can't eat my apple. My name is Megan Nicole Thompson, and I teach physical activity and nutrition education. I am a single parent, and I make a very low income. And I have asthma and I have allergies. And my medicine was more than what my paycheck was. So you didn't have any insurance at all? Anything you had to pay for out of your pocket? Yes, I was offered insurance through my work, but it was just too expensive. I mean, it was just nothing I could do. What did you do then? You, you got sick and just had to live with it? Right. My asthma flared up again and it was really hard, and especially when it's really hot outside. What happened then when the Affordable Care Act came in? Did you then think, yippee, I'm going to get insurance? Tell me what happened. Yes, I was so excited because then I would be able to go to the doctor and I could get back on all my asthma medications, my allergy medications, and I could get back on the right track. I mean, it's, re- it's really, it's really great. I mean, really, really awesome. They're doing it for us. I mean, jump on board and get healthy, too. Ready? Okay, ready, set, go. Megan's got another reason to celebrate Obamacare. Insurance companies used to be able to refuse or limit your coverage if you had a pre-existing condition like asthma. That's no longer allowed. Jennifer, tell me a little bit about where are we headed now? Now we're headed to a local business owner. She is a hairdresser and her daughter has a skin condition. That's the worst I've ever saw. And she was going with that medical treatment. Are we going to her hairdressing business now? Yes, yes. Hello, this is Sadie Smith. Hi, Sadie, I'm Claire from the BBC. Hi. Why don't you work and I chat to you? Is that okay? That's fine. Okay. My husband lost his job a month and a half ago. Mm -hmm. And And you you had insurance through his job? Yes, yes. So when you lose your job, that's it? You lose your health insurance? You lose everything, yes. But I do Jennifer's hair. And so me and her was talking about it, and she was telling me that if they had a program that we could go through, that we could have insurance. I'm very thankful for it, but it scares me just a bit. Just a bit. Scares? It's the control. Government control. It's like they're wanting to control everybody. Their finances, insurance, it all goes back into one setting. Control. And yet, because of that control, you're actually getting something that you're I am getting to. something beneficial out of it. But hopefully I don't have to stay on it long. When he gets a job, you know, we'll be back to normal. Those fears about government control and interference and the strongly held feeling in the U.S. that individuals should take care of themselves go to the heart of much of the opposition there's been to the health reforms. But there's some raw politics at play here as well. When it was passed, we very quietly began taking all the planning money from the federal government and getting ourselves into a position to be able to move forward. And then once the uh, U.S. Supreme Court upheld the constitutionality of the act, we hit the ground running. Democratic Governor of Kentucky Stephen Bashir is the only leader of a southern state to have implemented Obamacare in full. The Supreme Court may have ruled the Affordable Care Act constitutional, 
but it also said states couldn't be forced to expand Medicaid cover or set up their own insurance exchanges. So many, mostly Republican-led, refused to do so, hence the raw politics. As Governor Bashir saw it, these were politicians opposed to more or less anything Mr. Obama did. So when the governor introduced the reforms in Kentucky, he deliberately avoided associating them with the president in any way. The president is not all that popular in the state. He has about a 34% approval rating. And so we wisely decided to call it CONNECT, which stands for Kentucky's Connection, Healthcare Connection. And uh, we don't talk about Obamacare. We talk about Kentucky Connect, and we talk about the Affordable Care Act. And it's been amazing to watch Kentuckians really come out of the woodwork on this. They came in droves to sign up, and it's been that way ever since. You know, we've signed up over 421,000 Kentuckians during this first enrollment period, and that's beyond our wildest expectations in terms of success. I was looking today at a list of countries that have universal health care, and that list also contained the year in which that country adopted universal health care. And I was interested to see that Norway, for example, adopted universal health care in 1912, New Zealand and Japan back in 1938, Germany in 1941, Belgium in 1945, the United Kingdom in 48, Kuwait in 1950, Sweden in 1955, Bahrain and Brunei by 1958, Canada and the Netherlands by 1966, and on and on and on. But not inconspicuously missing from that list is, of course, as I assume every single American knows, the United States, which does not have universal health care. And in fact, we've seen since the passage of the Affordable Care Act even the Medicaid expansion, even the state exchanges be resisted by the most red states in the country. We did see blue states adopt the provisions of the Affordable Care Act. We started to see the more moderate red states, the more reasonably run red states, adopt most of the provisions of the Affordable Care Act. But the super conservative states have been holding out. However, there are now signs that even the uber-red states, like, for example, Wyoming, where nearly 70% of the voters voted for Mitt Romney, are going in the direction of expanding Medicaid, as indicated by the Affordable Care Act. Officials are starting to open up to the idea uh, of expanding Medicaid. The legislature requested earlier this year that Governor Matt Mead, who is a Republican, meet with the Obama administration to discuss some of the options. Mead said recently, at the end of the day, the expansion failed the first time because of federal distrust and general disdain for the current administration. Uh, However, it doesn't matter who's in the White House. The state of Wyoming is not fond of the federal government. 
but right now it's probably even worse. And they are moving in the direction, Lewis, of exploring this Medicaid expansion. Go to Pennsylvania, where Republican Governor Tom Corbett said that uh, he is now going to meet with the Department of Health and Human Services to look at the expansion of Medicaid. Indiana, led by Republican dark horse Mike Pence, possible 2016 candidate, already negotiating with the administration for their own plan. So why might this happen? Lewis, if you had to guess, why is it that all of a sudden we see the reddest of red states considering actually just doing what the Affordable Care Act suggests? Because it's a good thing for the state, it's a good thing for the people, and there's an election coming up? Well, the, yeah, those are all possibilities, yeah. And, and to, to, to put it further, to take a broader view, it's the combination of selling conservative lawmakers on the financial benefits of the expansion. Because remember, the federal government will fund 100% of the expansion through 2016, and no less than 90% thereafter so it's selling them on the the fiscal conservatism of it it's amazing that the fiscal conservatism of the affordable care act is a selling point uh as well as just doing something that is palatable to the states that are just very much against the idea of participating in number one something that president obama came up with even though it was really the big insurance companies that had a big part in coming up with this uh and and number two in something that seems like big government, which of course we know is not really the standard by which the right wing judges whether they should participate in something or not, but at its face it is. And it's very clear, Lewis, that this is a fiscally conservative thing for, from the point of view of the states, right? The federal government funds 90 to 100 percent of the Medicaid expansion. You reduce the number of uninsured claims, which are significantly less likely to ever be collected. When a hospital bills someone, whatever the astronomical rates are for their uh, uninsured treatment, uh, only a percentage of that is statistically likely to be ever collected. This is just obvious, Lewis, and as, as, as much sense as this makes, I still believe that it actually gets us further away from universal health care, which is where we really need to be. As an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, just one of the major companies under constant boycott by one liberal cause or another, from the banner posted at bestoftheleft.com. Better yet, click through just once and bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whatever you consider that to be. In the theater of the absurd uh, area, Congressman Mike Kennedy, a Republican from Utah, talking about why it's not a good idea to expand health care in the United States, why states should not take Medicaid expansion, and why even Obamacare itself was a bad idea, giving people health insurance. He says, and I quote, keep in mind, this is an actual legislator, one of the 435 members of the U.S. House of Representatives. This guy is from Utah, Republican. 
Quote, sometimes access to health care can be damaging and dangerous. I've heard, whenever people say I've heard, it's like, from who? That little voice in your head? I've heard from National Institutes of Health and otherwise that we're killing up to a million, a million and a half people every year in our hospitals. It's access to hospitals that's killing those people. Right. I'll give you that the fifth or sixth leading cause of death in the United States is hospital-acquired infections and, and you know, is basically iatrogenic disease, disease that's the result of a whoops or a side effect that was not expected or anticipated or might have been with a prescription drug or a, a, a uh, what are they called, non-sarcomia? No, that's, that's cancer, whatever it is, uh, hospital-acquired infections. And it's like, you know, it kills, I think it's like 10, 20,000 people a year. It's just some substantial number, but that's a reason why we shouldn't expand health care? Because our factory farms, misuse of antibiotics have created superbugs. We now have super strep, super staph, super, you know, uh, E. coli, super uh, listeria. All largely as a result of factory farming, and you know they're getting into our hospitals now, and they're killing people. But so therefore, let's just not give people health insurance, right? Congressman Mike Kennedy, the brain of the day. This year, we covered the flood of anti-affordable care acts ads that aired right before the end of the first phase of enrollment. The administration needed to get millions of young people to sign up for coverage before a March 31st deadline or else the law just wouldn't work. It was going to be tight. The ads got intense, even cartoonish. All right, can you swing on over, scoot on down, and try to make yourself comfortable? One notorious anti-Obamacare ad featured a creepy Uncle Sam giving patients terrifying internal exams. Spending on negative Obamacare ads eclipsed spending on positive ads by a remarkable 15 to 1. Did they have any impact? Neam Yuragi, a governance studies fellow at the Brookings Institute, says that in fact, they did. Anti-Obamacare ads increase the Obamacare enrollment number. How is that possible? There are basically two theories. The first one is that with the negative ads, citizens' awareness about this subsidized service increases, and the more ads they see, the more they know that such a service exists. So they will go and look for more information about the service. The other theory is that Citizens who are exposed to overwhelming number of negative ads about Obamacare are more likely to believe that this service is going to be repealed by the Congress in the near future. So if a citizen thinks that this service, which is subsidized heavily by the government, is going to soon discontinue, he or she will have a higher willingness to go and take advantage of this one-time opportunity before it goes away. (laughs) However, there are a tremendous number of variables, 
in why people sign up for the coverage, the cooperation of the state, the nature of the law in that state, the cost of the premiums. All this, combined with the disastrous rollout of the website, would seem to create a lot of confusion and uncertainty as to how you arrived at your conclusion. So tell me how the study worked and why you think the results got past all that noise. What we did was that we took the per capita spending on the negative ads and studied its effect on the enrollment ratio in Obamacare. And to calculate the per capita ad spending, I simply divide the total amount of dollars spent on negative ads to the total residents of that state. Then you went ahead and determined how many people out of those eligible for this kind of insurance, either the uninsured or those who uh, have private insurance, actually went and got Obamacare. Exactly. Let's say that there are 200,000 people out of a total of 1 million residents in that state who were eligible for Obamacare. And at the end of the first open enrollment period, 50,000 people out of those 200,000 people actually went and got Obamacare. The enrollment ratio in this state would be 50,000 divided by 200,000. So how do you answer critics who say, how do you control for income? How do you control for the relative costs of all the premiums that they're paying? The short answer is that we also measured as many variables as we could. So, for example, we accounted for the proportion of the residents living under the federal poverty line. We considered the effects of the private insurance premiums in our analysis. We are going to publish the reports very soon, and your audience would be able to access much more details about the effects of all of these variables that we mentioned. Kentucky and Arkansas and North Carolina have tightly contested Senate elections coming up. There were far, far more ads in those states than, say, in New York, where there were hardly any. In those states, do your results hold up? They do. And those states are among the states that actually represent a high number of Obamacare enrollees. Uh-huh. The point is that I think the opponents of the Obamacare did a strategic mistake by overwhelmingly airing negative ads, which led to the popularity of this service and higher enrollment. This is not a unique phenomenon. We have seen similar effects in other contexts. For example, there is a study in the Journal of Marketing Science published in 2010 by researchers from Wharton School and Stanford, and they show that the negative reviews at New York Times would increase the sales of the books of the unknown authors. A bad review is better than no review at all. Correct. The Fifty Shades of Grey, you know, <laughs> many of the reviews were negative. However, those negative reviews may have led to its popularity and increased sale.
Here at Best of the Left, we know that it's not enough just to stay informed. You need to get active if you actually want to change the world for the better. That's why we promote great activism opportunities every chance we get. Also, I can only reach so many people on my own, but with your help, we can extend that reach. The episode show notes are most likely available on the device you're using to listen right now, and if they're not, you can see them on the website. Simply click the title of any segment you want to share and then easily post it to your social networks or send it directly to friends. You joining these actions and helping amplify the show to get even more people involved is critical to our mission to change the world for the better. Get started right now in the show notes on the device you're using or visit the website from any device at bestoftheleft.com. The new Washington Post ABC News poll about the Affordable Care Act finds that even in the states where Mitt Romney won the presidential election, there is still slightly more support for keeping Obamacare than for repealing it. The poll's top, the, the poll's uh, general uh, finding, the broad finding, is that 57% of voters support Obamacare or don't support it but want to allow it to continue to see how it does. Only 39% want to repeal the law. That's 57 to 39 nationally for keeping Obamacare over repealing. Uh, it's insane, by the way, that 39% want to repeal it, but let's skip that for a second. It turns out, though, that when we look at the state-by-state -state results, there is not a substantial difference on the question when you compare voters from blue states to voters from red states. There are a lot more anti-Obamacare ads in the red states, but even in spite of that, there is only slightly more opposition to Obamacare in red states than there is in blue states. So this is interesting on a number of levels. Number one, it's interesting because in spite of the fact that many Republican governors are keeping the Medicaid expansion out of their states, in spite of the fact that the red states are often getting bombarded with anti-Obamacare messaging, we still see pretty steady levels of support for Obamacare in the blue states than we do in the red states. It's also interesting because when we look at the provisions of the Affordable Care Act, when individuals are fairly and honestly polled about the individual provisions, we see that there is almost complete consensus nationwide. Should the government provide some basic level of care to all Americans regardless of ability to pay? People say yes. Now, when you say, do you think that the government should take over health care from private industry, you get a very different answer. But when we fairly ask people about these things, there actually is a consensus that not only supports what's in Obamacare, it supports a move towards national health care. So this is encouraging to some extent, uh, particularly in the sense that it seems that the red states are somehow able to resist the barrage, the influence from that barrage of anti-Obamacare ads. And I don't know, I'm still completely skeptical and not at all optimistic about the possibility of this country moving in the direction of national health care. But I'm encouraged by the fact that this poll and the other polls which ask about specific provisions at least are pointing us in the direction that people do deep down know what it is they want and what's right when it comes to health care, even if they're swayed by the language, the wordsmithing, and the politics of it.
You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, the campaign for America's health centers and the health center funding cliff. One of the big benefits to the Affordable Care Act was the money designated for building new, updating old, revamping existing, and expanding the services of community health centers. For millions of Americans who don't have a primary care doctor or live in a state that still refuses to expand Medicaid, these facilities bridge the gaps for everyone from annual exams and vaccinations to mental health and HIV-AIDS care. Like all good things, however, there's no guarantee the money will continue to flow. Funding for these centers faces a 70% cut via what advocates are calling the health center funding cliff if action isn't taken when Congress reconvenes next year. No, 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 wait, come back. It's not as hopeless as it sounds to ask the House and the Senate and the Oval Office to agree on both an idea and the funding to follow through on that idea. The Campaign for America's Health Centers is planning ahead at SaveOurCHCS.org. With information, petitions, a place to submit your personal story, mobile advocacy, voting resources, and lobbying already underway. And get ready. They have bipartisan support. From their Facebook page, Arkansas Representative John Boozman, a Republican, declares, quote, The community health center facilities in Arkansas play a vital role in providing patients a cost-effective option for health care in areas underserved by the medical community. We must provide these clinics with the resources they need to respond to the needs of their patients, unquote. And then there's North Carolina Representative David Price, a Democrat, quote, That's why health centers have overwhelming bipartisan support in Congress. I hope House leadership hears our message loud and clear. Investing in community health centers is a top priority as we endeavor to expand access to high-quality health care, unquote. Even the so far to the right we don't know how he hasn't fallen over the edge governor of Mississippi, Phil Bryant, said that though Medicaid needs to remain hard to get, his state should be putting more money into community health centers that serve low-income patients. Clinicians agree the health center funding cliff would be detrimental to affordable primary and long-term care. If support spans party lines and state lines and has the backing of those directly involved in patient care, the only thing stopping the push to prevent the health center funding cliff is how super unfamous it is. Check out your community, see if there's a health center, begin now to do something only you can. Make the issue of access to affordable, reliable care within your network feel real to your friends and family. Bring the issue home and make it personal. Then, next year, when Congress is in session and you're tweeting, calling, and writing your legislators, you can do so as a group, a powerful, real, live, hard-to-ignore group. The segment notes include all of the links to this information, as well as additional resources, and as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the Activism tab at bestoftheleft.com. If healthcare matters to you, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about the campaign for America's health centers and the health center funding cliff via social media so that others in your network can get involved too.
NBC's Meet the Press has a Meeting America series, which we've noted has mainly meant meeting white Republicans. They did something different July 27th, but different wasn't better. The segment focused on Vermont's debate over converting to something like a single-payer health care system, which the show presented as pushing into uncharted waters and going further than Obamacare. Despite the fact that actual single-payer is a system already in use around the world and that by displacing the private insurance companies, the Affordable Care Act privileges and entrenches, single-payer might more accurately be described as a step in the opposite direction. It takes a lot to frame a system that majorities of Americans have called for for years as an untested, quite possibly disastrous notion, but Meet the Press takes a shot at it. The debate is presented as being over whether Vermont can afford single-payer, since, as the lead tells us, many say taxes could double. But it's a folksy, cracker-barrel segment, so no one brings any boring facts or figures to bear to help viewers decide if single-payer would be, quote, a solution to America's health care crisis or the road to bankruptcy for Vermont, close quote. We do, however, hear one man's unchallenged claim that the wheels are falling off health care in Canada with long waits for surgery or even routine care. And a pro-single-payer source is described as supporting the panacea of health care that covers everyone. Panacea, of course, carrying the connotation of something too good to be true. Few supporters of universal health care see it as curing all ills. But elite media must believe it would change something. Or why would they fight so hard to scare us off it? My goal with this show is to inform, inspire, and activate listeners to push for positive change. With the support of listeners, I've been able to expand what we do here and make the show better over time. And the only way to continue doing that, to grow and improve, is with your support. I don't need a giant pile of money to run this show. I just need a steady, dependable stream of 5 and $10 monthly donations from people like you. For signing up, you'll also get access to special bonus content, including some behind-the-scenes stuff and more of my comments. If you believe in the mission of this show as much as I do, please help it continue to grow and improve by becoming a member today. Details are on the membership page at bestoftheleft.com. Thanks so much for your support. Yeah, Ralph, you wanted to talk about Consumer Union, which is another a great nonprofit organization. They have a guide to health care. Tell us uh, what you know about that. Well, they have a long practice of trying to clarify the maze of health insurance laws for consumers. And they do a really very good job, but that's not my point. They just put out another guide. It's just beautifully done, and on their website, it's an excellent website. And it basically says to consumers, you have Obamacare, you have thousands of pages in the law, in the regulations. You have states, some of them are opting out of the Medicaid provisions, especially southern states for poor people. And others are letting the federal government in because of the big federal subsidy. 
for Medicaid under Obamacare. Medicaid is administered by the states. And it's an unbelievable maze. It's a tax maze. It's a gobbledygook maze. It's a frightening maze of choices. What levels are you going to be covered for? At what point does your income go up and you're no longer qualifying for certain strata of Obamacare coverage? And I always point to this because although we all know Canada has a lot of trees and they have a lot of pulp and paper mills, they don't have to devote one sheet of paper to advise Canadian consumers how to negotiate Medicare in Canada. The bill that created Medicare in the 1960s, covering everybody in, nobody out, free choice of doctor and hospital, which most Americans no longer have, with the tightening networks, and a better outcomes, and half the price per capita. They get it on $4,500 per capita. We're up over $9,000, and we have tens of millions of people not covered. So the bill was 13 pages, that's all, and all you need in Canada is the card, the Medicaid card. You're sick, you go to a hospital, you go to a doctor. It's the card. Here you go. They want to ask you, how are you going to pay? You know, are you in this? Are you out of this? Are you out of network? Are you in network? So the path through Obamacare is single payer. Let me repeat that, folks. Do not let your senators and representatives think that Obamacare has pushed single payer, everybody in, nobody out. The government is the insurer. They already insure over 50% of the expenditure, the state and federal level, Medicare, Medicaid, government employees, etc. This will be clarified. It will be simplified. Full health insurance for everybody. Nobody in, nobody out. Nobody dies under full single payer. In Canada, Luxembourg, France, Germany, Sweden, Italy, Taiwan, Japan, because they're all covered from cradle until they pass away. In the U.S., 800 a week die because they can't afford health insurance to get diagnosed and treated. That'll go down a bit as Obamacare kicks in. It'll still be in the hundreds every week, my fellow listeners, every week. And it isn't even factually disputed, and it isn't even part of election campaigns by the Democrats, not to mention the Republicans. Do you want to give the website, Steve, Yeah, uh, just for people who are stuck and they want to have at least a reasonably clarifying route through the maze? Yes, your route through the maze, through the Consumers Union, go to healthlawhelper.org. That's healthlawhelper.org. And we just went on the site, and it's uh, pretty amazing. uh, Yeah, very user-friendly, and you tell them what state you're in, and they'll take you through it. I had some doctors on our show recently, and I asked them, what was more difficult for you, learning organic chemistry or unraveling the reimbursement policies of health insurance providers? And to a man and a woman, they all said trying to figure out health insurance reimbursement was far more difficult than learning organic chemistry. If we're able to negotiate our way through this maze... If there's this website, 
that just is very efficient, the health insurance companies end up losing money, right? It's not in their best interest for this to be simple. That's true. They profit from complexity like corporations everywhere. Complex forms, complex fine print contracts, credit card contracts, home mortgage contracts, car dealer contracts, payday loan contracts. You know, that's the trick. The more complex it is, the more they know, the less you know. The more they can twist you into pretzels and make you give up and just sign on the dotted line. What's also interesting is in Canada, you don't see a bill for most part under the Medicare system. Think of the reams of computer paper, inscrutable billing, which, of course, camouflages in their complexity, $290 billion of computerized fraud in the healthcare industry, computerized billing fraud, billing fraud, just the billing fraud in the healthcare industry a year. I mean, this is with a B, folks. $290 billion. You know what the annual budget is for the Environmental Protection Agency? $10 billion. So it really is time to get serious. I mean, we just can't fool around anymore. The young people's destiny is going down the tubes, except that it is for the new video game that's coming out pretty soon, which will have over 4 million purchasers. A video game called Destiny. Can you imagine? Four million purchases, just like that. Tell me, it's not an addiction. Okay, go ahead. What were you saying, Dave? Years ago, you wrote that scientists and computer geniuses have invented all these new apps and software, but the one thing nobody's been able to invent is a 25th hour of the day. And when doctors have to spend all this time unraveling their bills and trying to figure out how to get paid, that's taking them away from studying the new developments in medicine. They should be studying ways to make us better, not ways to get reimbursed. A little notice point that you just made is very, very important because when you ask Canadian doctors the following question, you know, you can go south of the border. We have a doctor shortage in the U.S. We're importing doctors and you'll make more money. Why are you staying in Canada? And the answer is, because we want to practice medicine, not bookkeeping. See the difference? And every doctor, you take a primary care doctor in America, it's almost one clerk for every doctor just to take care of the paperwork. When I was in New Zealand, a friend of mine was taking a year-long sabbatical there, and that was his main reason. He wanted to spend more time with patients being a doctor. But we're told the profit motive is what fuels medicine. Is that true? Yeah, but you see, the medical profession is only a piece of the whole profit motive pie. The big money is made by the drug companies. The big money is made by the hospital chains. The big money is made by the health insurance giants like Aetna, who can spend 25% of your premium on administrative costs. And the big money is made by these giant integrated practices of doctors like the MRI shops. I mean, it's just unbelievable what these MRI shops make. There's an MIR shop attached to the Alta Bates Hospital in Berkeley. They botched a patient's MRI. They had him come in twice. They didn't do the right thing. They botched it. He missed his opportunity to get it surgically taken care of. And then they sent him an $11,000 bill. And the insurance company, instead of saying, what, what are you guys doing? They paid almost half of it without even 
thinking about it. What we're saying here, David, is it's a denial of reality. We're going to talk about the future of truth. It's a denial of factual reality. The system is broken. It keeps getting more broken, more wasteful, more corrupt, more harmful to patients, more production of billions of anxieties a year by people. I mean, the peace of mind of Canadians. Put a dollar value on that. Where's the AMA's complicity in all this? I know that they were against Medicare, but most doctors, and I, I know that the AMA is less powerful than it used to be, but why haven't the doctors risen up and spoken as one and said, we need single payer? I know the New England Journal of Medicine has said we need single payer. Where are the doctors in all this? Why haven't they risen up as one and said, this is a disgrace? Because single payer does not have fee for service medicine. And although in one poll five years ago, 59% of all doctors wanted single payer, full Medicare for all. That's pretty good. The powers that be in the American Medical Association have this ideological antipathy to anything government, even though, you know, they're all participating in Medicare and government research and development through the National Institutes of Health and all the rest of it. But the main reason is that there's enough of them stuck on this fee-for-service so that they can basically increase their own income by increasing their services. They get the insurance companies or if people aren't insured, the customer, to pay more and more. So they may over-diagnose, over-test. That's been well-documented. But the old knee-jerk reaction of the American Medical Association when President Truman proposed universal health care in the 1940s, that's gone now. They're not the major players. The major players are the health insurers, the drug companies, and the giant hospital chains. And they're the block against single payer. However, the majority of the American people, hands down, would be for single payer. Why wouldn't they? But they're not organized. And the unions... Since the unions have health insurance coverage uh, for their rank and file, they're interested in single payer, but that's not a central core issue for them because their members have it already. Although they're upset with Obamacare because Obamacare has a sanction on what they call Cadillac insurance plans collectively bargained by, you know, like unions like, say, the, the Teamsters and the trucking companies or the auto companies. Uh, they're upset with Obamacare on that. All this will be dissolved into the dustbins of history with single payer. We listed 21 areas of difference between Canadian ordinary life and American ordinary life because they have different ins health insurance systems. And it really is mind-boggling. I, I think if you go to singlepayeraction.org, and you'll see. Here's one, for example. Canadians would never change jobs because of health insurance. Americans do all the time. They refuse to change jobs if they're insured because they don't want to go to another job and they might not be insured. So there's an immobility in the job market right there. And to take an extreme example, but it really is telling, there are people in this country who are sick, who are poor, who don't qualify for the maze of Medicaid, they actually will commit a misdemeanor, plead guilty in order to go to jail to get food and insurance. How about that one? In the land of the free, home of the brave. When are you going to get upset, folks? 
When are you going to start collaring your members of Congress? That's what it is. 535 members of Congress. We change a majority. We got what we want. It's what Eugene Debs once said at the end of his career in the 1920s. A reporter asked him, what's your greatest regret? He said, my greatest regret is that under our Constitution, the American people can have almost anything they want. Yet it just seems they don't want much of anything at all. I've um, had a thought a couple years ago, and I just kind of remembered it and with this debate going on about whether we should arm the rebels, which apparently now we're going to do. And I, and I remembered it, and I thought about it. And when I was in Iraq, it dawned on me that all the weapons weren't Iraqi. Like, go from the biggest. Those weren't Iraqi fighter jets. They were Soviet MiGs. And that's not a T-72 Iraqi tank, it's a T-72 Soviet tank. And it's not an Iraqi AK-47, it's a Soviet AK-47. All these weapons were never supplied, built, any way, shape, or form by the Iraqi people, the Iraqi government, none of it. They were purchased. The same thing, you can see this all over the world, the same thing in Iran, the same thing in Afghanistan. The thing about it, what I'm trying to say is that the weapons mainly come from three countries. Us, Russia, or China. For the vast majority of the planet, they don't make their own weapons. They purchase their weapons. Well, look what happens when you start giving weapons out, be it Russia, China, or us. The Islamic State, they're not using weapons that they manufactured. They're using weapons that were supplied by another country. Maybe Russia supplied Saudi Arabia and Saudi Arabia supplied ISIS or whatever the case may be. In a lot of the cases, they're using captured weapons that we supplied to the Iraqi army. So the idea that that, that army people is somehow going to solve the problem uh, has a pretty long track record of not working. It has a track record of propping up the bad people. Because if you get your hands on a couple of tanks and nobody else has a tank well now you're the top dog because I'm going to tell you right now it's pretty hard to knock out a tank if you don't have the appropriate weapon to do it so you give weapons out and you hope they stay in the hands that you wanted them to stay in and then you have to hope that the hands that you wanted them to stay in stay loyal to you that they don't bite your hand that's feeding them it seems to me an impossible situation Arming the rebels is probably the worst idea I've ever heard. We should stop arming people together, and the U.N. should look at making arms embargoes where the governments of the main arms suppliers are not channeling these weapons into inappropriate hands. And you don't have to go in there and confiscate these weapons. All you have to do is stop supplying the spare parts, you know, Planes, helicopters, tanks, even even guns. They need parts to run. They, they break down. They need ammunition. Cut that supply off, 
and it dries up quickly. This is the only way that, that I see that you're eventually going to have top, some type of peace when nobody has a massive arsenal. Nobody can be all-powerful like seemingly ISIS is. That's just my thoughts on it, something I noticed when I was in Iraq. So uh, I'm throwing it out there. Have a good one, Jay. Hello, best of the left. This is Dan Platt from Albany, New York. Uh, this is just a quick message on, because uh, I just listened to the male dominance last episode on the 23rd. And, um, my take on real men, uh, your, your reason's good. It's, it's totally true. Uh, but another take, uh, would be, uh, one of the reasons we dislike Sarah Palin is, um, she mentions this uh, phrase like real American and just like any uh, if you use the phrase real blank you're basically by default being exclusionary you're drawing these lines around a certain definition of a real blank and when it comes to things like gender male or female you're basically kicking uh, in the face anyone who's gender fluid or perhaps doesn't care or rather would like to do away with gender roles gender stereotypes, all the things that we would presumably be against. So trying to define what is a real blank is rather stupid. Also the matter of, uh, you know, if, if, if women can do, be more male and men can be more like women, then we can just all be people and get over ourselves. I'm rather annoyed whenever anybody kind of argues rather aggressively about you know, how men and women are different, as if it's really, really important that we be different. I'm not sure why, besides caring children and, and other obvious, in fact, no, not obvious, because some men can have, quote, feminine features, and, and women can be, have male features, you know, and, and if you're not, then you're not normal, and you're not real, and of course, that's just dehumanizing, and, you know, it's wrong, 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 wrong. So, uh, that's just my thoughts. Thank you for uh, the all. Thank you. Hey, Jay. It's Dave here from Canada. Uh, I'm just calling about that uh, conversation you were starting there on the phrase real men. And uh, I'm totally in agreement about the way it marginalizes and stigmatizes uh, femininity and the problems inherent in that. But I think there's a little bit more to it as well. I really think that when we use phrases like real men do X, Y, or Z, we're also dehumanizing people to a large extent. I mean, even when you're saying something like real men don't beat their wives, there is the one side, like you said, where that's kind of calling that guy a pussy or something like that, which is like a horrible term. But on the other hand, there's also the side that, well, if they're not a real man, what are they? They could just not be a person. And then we end up with a problem within the justice system, right? Like, it's okay to do what to to this man who's not a man, right? Where does it end? Instead of us having responsibilities as a people to treat people who've done reprehensible things still with respect, that's gone, you know? They're out of our group. And that's the other side of it, too, you know? Where's the group responsibility if they're not part of our group? You know, if no true Christian priest does things to children, well, then you don't have to take responsibility for that guy who did. 
And I think there's something very dangerous there when we start putting people out of our group based on how we police our group. You know, if no true progressive does X, Y, or Z, then we don't have to look more toughly at ourselves, at our groups, and seek to deal with these problems. So yeah, I just wanted to bring that up. Uh, like I said, I think it's very important that we don't dehumanize people who even do things that we really, really, really don't agree with. And that we, as a group, and as people, as humanity, see these problems and try and solve them rather than just pushing them off into the wilderness behind us. Thanks, Jay. Uh, keep up the great work, man. I just love your podcast. I think it's the best thing out there. Have a good one. Bye. Hello, Jay. This is uh, Larry in Fort Worth, Texas, wanting to make my comments on the conservative humor uh, piece that you ran at the end of your uh, show. And let's explain that uh, I believe conservative humor is, by nature, sophomoric, which means uh, someone being confident of knowledge but poorly informed and immature. Conservative humor is college Republicans, for example, holding bake sales where minorities, women, and gays pay less than straight white males for cookies, or costume parties fe featuring young conservatives decked out in blackface. The Elizabeth Warren sketch is a prime example of this level of humor where crude dialect and stereotypical responses are supposed to engender laughs. Instead, this type of joking makes uh, people amused only if they think that racial slurs and sexual harassment are somehow intrinsically funny. That's my thoughts on the subject. Thanks, Jay. You do a great job, and keep it up. Hey, Jay. It's Kyle from Cleveland. Just listened to the last episode, and your segment at the end about the right-wing comedy, or excuse for comedy, was pretty good. I think you did a great job in pointing out that even though at first he was starting off in the right direction, he quickly changed routes and just became, like you said, hurtful, demeaning, marginalizing, and stereotyping. Um, and again, I've said this time and time again, as progressives or liberals, I consider myself and those of us who share in these same kinds of thought process as evolved. I was not, I didn't always feel the way I do or believe the things I did, but as my eyes became opened and I saw the bigger picture of things, and I was possibly able to step outside of myself as an adult instead of just thinking about me, me, me as a child, I've actually reversed some of the uh, positions that I was brought up to understand, you know, to appreciate and follow. I just think conservatives, for the most part, they haven't gotten to that point of being evolved yet. I mean, I don't want to sound mean and say childish, but they just still seem very unable to think outside of themselves, to think of the true greater good, the bigger picture. Just so something I noticed I wanted to share. Thanks, man. Bye. Hi, Jay. This is Kwai Franklin. I recently listened to your comments at the end of number 865, Structural Failures That Lead Us to War on Conservatism and Comedy. Uh, this is something I've often thought about myself as a writer and entertainer. I do think there's a lot to the hatred theory or anger theory, or at least to the lack of empathy towards groups and individuals with less power relative to the majority in a society. It's just not funny, generally, to simply make fun of minority groups and never challenge the status quo. 
but that attitude is a seems to be a keystone to conservative ideology. Uh, and if you keep that position in your comedy, it's just not funny unless you really you fully support that ideology. Uh, mainly, I was reminded of an example from my own life. A few years ago, my wife and I and a friend went to see a Jeff Dunham show at a local venue. I don't know how familiar you are with Jeff Dunham and his comedy. He basically does a racist, xenophobic, homophobic, etc. ventriloquist act and plays out the most ignorant of stereotypes. Embarrassingly, my wife and I and that friend were na uh, naive progressives who assumed quite wrongly we found out later that he was making fun of people who exhibit those prejudices. But we found out otherwise when we bought tickets and went to his show. He had this uh, singer-guitarist uh, be his opening act, and this guy was very obviously pandering to political conservatives. I remember at the time he sang this tribute song to Jan Brewer in, the, in Arizona, and this was around the time of the, the Show Your Papers law passed there. So when Jeff Dunham finally came out, the opening act and the audience's reaction to that opening act made it quite clear that he is not really making fun of bigots but seems to be one himself and he made being bigoted a core part of his act in light of what we now understood we no longer found him funny as we had before furthermore he was adding a new section to his act that featured a uh, caricatured dummy of his estranged wife the misogyny that came across along with his own bitterness about their relationship issues and breakup made me realize that hate makes for poor comedy. It's difficult to say why this would be, and I think it deserves much more study and thought. But I think a good place to start is with the hypothesis that hate, by definition, will not include empathy or the ability to identify with another's suffering or challenges. Uh, so those are my thoughts. Thanks, Jay. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make the show possible. Thanks to Katie Klobusik for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. And today, you may have noticed that I sort of just let the voicemails take over the end of the show here. Uh, you know, frankly, the, the voicemails I get is sometimes a bit of a feast or famine sort of situation. And it's, it's been a bit of a feast recently. I've been getting a lot of really good messages. There, I was getting a little bit backed up, I felt like, so I thought, all right, I'm just going to play all of these and sort of get them out of the way. Uh, you know, feasting on too many good voicemails to play is a, is a wonderful problem to have, so please keep them coming in. The number again, 202-999-3991, but that is all the time for today. So, Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it, leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher, and by donating your accounts at donateyouraccount.com slash left. Stay tuned into the show by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter, and for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a cry and shame How we get so trained We can see past our sad story
Stories and forgot who it is before.